Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio for Friday the 21st of April. So the first thing I want to talk about tonight is I want to give a shout out to all of those who will be marching in tomorrow's March for Science. And unfortunately, I really am very sad about this. I am not going to be able to go this time um, as I did for the Women's March. Um, I unfortunately do have to work. It's the one weekend a year that I have to work, of course. Um, So unfortunately, I won't be in Boston, but I'll be there in spirit. Um, And I just want to remind everyone, uh, as we're talking about this, that regardless of your political beliefs, Funding for science research should not be on budgetary chopping blocks. In fact, we should be pouring more money into research and science that will help us move more confidently into the future. So let's also give a slightly belated birthday shout out to the Hubble Space Telescope, which turned 27 yesterday. Now, despite some troubles at the beginning, the Hubble has gone on to do some of the most amazing work in astronomy with some 14,000 papers so far having been written using data from Hubble. Now, I'll link to the NSA website where they've picked the top 13 topics that Hubble has helped out with. And so, yeah, there's some great um, pictures there, obviously, since Hubble is a, um, it is a visual telescope, because of course, there are also radio telescopes and infrared telescopes and things like that. But Hubble takes pretty pictures. (laughs) Um, Though technically, um, I was reading an article the other day, and someone was saying like, They were showing a beautiful picture of, you know, part of the Hubble deep field and saying, this isn't really what Hubble sees because, you know, sometimes they do add different colors to make it more um, visually um, evocative, but it's still pretty awesome. Okay. And so let us move on now and talk about a really interesting and... um, actually some good news on a completely different front. (laughs) Um, And so we haven't talked about religion in any way in a while. And so there are a couple of stories that I had found recently that I thought were pretty interesting and that would be good to talk about. And so let's start off with one about the military. Now, whether or not you support the military, I still think that this is pretty cool. Um, My personal opinion is that I'm anti-war, but not anti-soldier per se, in the same way that I am anti-religion, but not anti-religious people. I think we'd most likely be better off with either war, without either war or religion. But I understand that individual members of both groups can have a wide variety of thoughts and beliefs that may or may not be consistent with the overall goals of the institution. Because if there's one thing that I know about people is that they are inconsistent, um, and especially inconsistent with the beliefs of groups that they espouse to be a part of. So, um, for instance, 
the one that always gets me is, of course, Catholic nuns in America are much more liberal um, in many cases than the uh, than the leaders back in Rome would like them to be. And there have been fights about that. Um, and so that's one of those definitely um, easy sort of examples of how just because someone believes in a thing doesn't mean that they believe in all bits of it or that they are doing it because they're interested in, say, going to war. Um, You know, some people really just believe strongly in defending the country. And so I definitely think that that is something that people should be respected their decisions to do that. So what I wanted to talk about was actually the intersection of um, the military and religion, as I was alluding to earlier. So for a long time, advocacy advocacy groups like American the American Humanist Association have been arguing that people without a defined faith like Christianity or Islam or Judaism should be able to be identified as something other than no religious preference or not applicable. So it's actually very exciting. This month, the Department of Defense has officially recognized humanism as a belief system, which means it is now protected under the department's ethical standards. So the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense states that they have expanded the religious groups it defines and will now call the demographic data the faith and belief code rather than the older faith group code. So the president of the Military Association of Atheist and Free Thinkers, Jason Torpy, said, After a decade of our positive outreach and communications of the struggle humanists have faced in the military, we wish to convey our sincere appreciation for the chaplains and endorsers who recommended these changes and made this advance possible. And so Roy Speckhart, executive director at the American Humanist Association notes that we thank the Department of Defense for recognizing the brave and dedicated humanists serving in our armed forces who protect our constitutional freedom to believe and not believe. This is a step towards inclusiveness and respect for all Americans. The changes include the ability to choose deist, no religion, humanist, no response, and other religious affiliations. Now, another huge advantage to this, other than just being demographically represented, is that, and again, beyond visibility, is the fact that this will help non-religious service members to gain access to support groups and other tangible benefits that service members have been struggling to gain access to, or at least that's the hope. (laughs) So, you know, if you want to start a group that is... Um, you know, a humanist group, there have been humanists who wanted to start a, you know, a study group, and they've been told no, because it's not a religion. But, you know, Christian soldiers can get together and pray, Muslim soldiers can get together and pray. But the humanists were told that you can't do that because you don't have a recognized um, religion. So this will hopefully help with that so that they can get access to the kinds of things that they should be able to get access to. 
And what's interesting is that it's not just humanism um, and other forms of non-belief that have been recognized. The military has actually added a slew of new faith designations, including a few surprising ones um, like Sikh, as well as Reformed and Orthodox Judaism, all of which I would have thought they already had, but maybe it's some sort of change in the designation. But one of the interesting things is how many less mainstream religions so, for instance, they now recognize the Church of the Spiral Tree, uh, Rastacrucianism, uh, Dianic Gardarian, Gard- Gardnerian, and Siax Wicca, all three, uh, Druid, uh, Shaman, Asatru, Pagan, and a whole host of various denominations of Protestants. Protestantism um, and other offshoots that would sort of fall under the general umbrella of Christianity. And so, again, the official memo states that the changes are meant to help accurately track more faith and belief systems, providing more accurate demographic data for religious groups, enabling better planning for religious support to the force, and providing a better assessment of the capabilities and requirements of each military service chaplain's corps. So that's one of the really exciting things, because, of course, if you have these um, different religions are now represented, that means they should have representation in the chaplain's corps, or at least the chaplains should be trained in how to deal with people who have these various belief systems. So it was very exciting. Um and I hope that the implementation, the implementation goes smoothly. Now, of course, one of the things, because I tend to read about this sort of stuff, is I'm wondering how quickly the hate letters will start coming in to um, a certain group that isn't even affiliated with this, but seems to get the brunt of all of these things. And that's the Military Freedom from Religion Foundation. Um, and it's headed by um, Michael Mikey Weinstein. And if you ever want to get depressed about um, the state of people and um, what they will write to others that they don't even know, you can check out one of the uh, sets of his hate mail that have been published um, because they're pretty amazing. Um, yeah, it's it's if you want to lose all hope for humanity. Um, but let's not. Let's move on. Um, so anyways... This is a, uh, the next story I want to talk about is not exciting, um, unfortunately, but I also thought it was super important to talk about, which is that there is a new ban in Russia on Jehovah's Witnesses because apparently they are considered a hate group, or I'm sorry, an extremist group. Um, and so, yeah, it's pretty crazy. I am completely confused and befuddled by this, but, uh, yeah. So it turns out that Russia's Supreme Court has decided to ban them. And so, of course, I imagine that some of us are probably giggling at the idea that witnesses would be considered an extremist group. But this really is a serious blow to religious freedom in a country that already has pretty much an abysmal track record when it comes to freedoms of any type, religious or otherwise. Um, 
And this is interesting to me because I feel like it's the kind of thing that some religious people think that atheists would enjoy doing. Um, But for me, it's pretty much the opposite. Um, I'm kind of the win people over to your side kind of person rather than the ruthlessly suppress anything you don't agree with type of person. Funny that way. So the Jehovah's Witnesses have stated that they believe there are more than 170,000 adherents to the faith in Russia, and it has already faced suppression, including a ban on distributing literature. Now, due to the court's agreement with a request from the Justice Ministry, the government is ordering not only the closure of their Russian headquarters, but also the closure of 395 local chapters across the country. And as part of this, they are seizing that property. And so it is basically a move that harkens back to not only Soviet times, but really honestly to feudal times of sort of declaring a religion null and void and you know, taking all of their assets for yourself. Um, It's very uh, Knights Templar. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, it's just crazy. And so the Justice Ministry attorney, Svetlana Borisova, told the court um, that they pose a threat to the rights of the citizens, public order, and public security. And that is according to the Interfax News Agency. She further suggested that the witness's refusal of blood transfusions violates Russian healthcare laws. And of course, again, what makes this so Orwellian is that the Jehovah's Witnesses are being prosecuted under laws that were ostensibly cre- created to target groups like the Islamic State and neo-Nazi groups like the National Socialist Society. So the initial law was enacted in 2013. 2002, and it was extended by Vladimir Putin to nonviolent groups in 2007. But of course, like most anti-blasphemy laws, which is basically what this is, um, in essence, it is often used as a political tool or when an official has an axe to grind with someone. So for the witnesses, it seems that their habit of wandering around and proselytizing, including calling people on the phone and basically, you know, proclaiming that Jehovah is God and you should do what Jehovah wants, um, or also what Mary Baker Eddy would like you to do. um, Basically, that is what has caused people to consider them to be extremists. um, And... So, yeah, I don't really get that. I mean, sure, Jehovah's Witnesses can be annoying, um, but that's far from being a dangerous extremist group that needs to be wiped off the map of your country. And so, you know, a lot of witnesses feel like this is basically turning back to the time of the Soviet Union, where they would have to hold clandestine prayer services in homes with the windows covered in heavy cloths. And so I actually was reading a different story from before this happened about one couple who are Jehovah's Witnesses who were basically put on trial in this uh, sort of town far out in the east. Um, And they were put on trial with a bunch of other people. And literally they had had the officials had had people infiltrate them and take 
um, you know, photos and and record them and built this huge case about how they were clearly Jehovah's Witnesses and needed to be prosecuted. And it just it seemed so much like a scene straight out of a Soviet film um, or a film about the Soviet Union. And so it's very weird. Um, and of course, I'm not saying that Jehovah's Witnesses are harmless. Um, some of their doctrines can be harmful. Um, I especially think that denying blood transfusions to children is basically child abuse. Um, you know, it's pretty straightforward as far as I personally am con concerned. And many witnesses do practice shunning, um, which is a really terrible practice that can tear families apart. Um, lots of these sorts of religions do that. Scientology does shunning. Um, the uh, Mormons do shunning. And there's whole like support groups and websites and uh, webs of people devoted to basically coming together when they've been shunned from the uh, Mormon faith, for instance, because basically they get cut off from everything and they have to start all over. So shunning, not a great thing. Um, but again, this doesn't mean that they should be ruthlessly suppressed by a totalitarian regime that continues to turn the country back towards the worst days of the Soviet Union. The freedom to worship or not worship as you please, as long as it doesn't hurt other people, should be a fundamental right. The courts can and do deal with individuals who go too far, such as parents who allow their children to get sick or die due to their religious beliefs. And while we do police people's beliefs in so much as they affect others, such as not letting people discriminate, that's a limitation on them acting on their beliefs, not holding them. You can still hate me for being, you know, whatever it is that you hate me for, as long as you still bake that cake for me. <laughs> and so it's very important to discriminate between the idea of limiting an action and not a thought. And of course, as much as I think that the early history of religious freedom in America is pretty directly tied to why we're still one of the most religious countries in the world and the most religious by far country in the developed world, I still think that it's an important and fundamental right. So we should definitely not try and ruthlessly suppress people. I think that that's pretty much a good rule to live by for everyone. Uh, don't try and ruthlessly suppress people. It's, it's bad. It's a bad thing. Don't do it. <laughs> okay. So let's get back to the world of science. Um, I just thought that both of those seemed very interesting stories to talk about. And, um, you know, the the military one I definitely don't think is going to get that much press, um, though the Jehovah's Witness one obviously is getting more press. But let's go back to the world of physics and astronomy. Now, it seems that no matter how many other cool things there are to talk about, physics and astronomy keep popping up. So um, these are actually a couple of stories that I had for last week, but I ran out of time and I definitely wanted to talk about them. So the first one is that it's being reported that researchers have for the first time ever imaged what until now has only been a theory, a bridge of dark matter between two galaxies. 
Now, as you may know, dark matter continues to be rather like an enigma wrapped in a mystery. Some physicists have started to suspect it's not even really out there at all, um, while others are finding better ways to attempt to measure it. And as we can see, image it. <laughs> um, and so scientists from the University of Waterloo, uh, Seth D. Epps and Michael J. Hudson, have submitted their findings in a paper published in the Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomy Society. For decades, researchers have been predicting the existence of dark matter filaments between galaxies that act like a like a web-like superstructure connecting galaxies together, said Hudson, a professor of astronomy. Um, this image moves us beyond predictions to something we can see and measure. So in order to capture the image, they used the weak gravitational lensing technique. And so that's basically when light is bent because it encounters supermassive objects. Now, of course, this isn't a picture in the way that you would take a picture with a camera. Um, it's actually a image created by imaging uh, pairs of galaxies. And not just one pair of galaxies, but rather 23,000 pairs of galaxies. And so these galaxies are about 4.5 billion light years away. And they were observed by the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope. And so basically what they did was they kept looking at these pairs of galaxies and then they took all of them and kind of overlaid them to create a composite image. And so basically that allowed them to boost the signal of the gravitational lensing effect in order to actually see that dark matter come to uh, light, shall we say. Um, and of course, it doesn't necessarily have any practical effect in the near future, um, but it does really lend weight to the contention that there really is dark matter out there. Uh, even if we still don't know what it is or what it's made of, we can at least say that we can see that we can see its effects for real. And so that's pretty cool because um, dark matter definitely continues to be one of those things where people keep saying like, sure, it's out there, um, I guess. <laughs> but I think that it's really, this is really, we're coming into a time where I think that we might actually be getting close to a point where we're going to actually be able to figure out what dark matter is. And even though it may not sound like that big of a deal, Understanding that kind of fundamental um, structure of the universe as a part of the universe is pretty amazing. Like that's one of the things that I always like to think about is the fact that all of this science that we're doing every day and especially, you know, in astronomy and things like that and trying to figure out how the universe works. If you think about it, it's really amazing that humans can think about and discover how the universe works as part of the universe because we're part of the universe and so I don't know it's a little bit hard to explain that kind of reversal but I always think it's kind of amazing and it's one of those things where I sometimes think that you know maybe there is a limitation to some kinds of knowledge um, it's the same with brain science you know with neuroscience it may be that the brain can only understand so much of itself. Um, and so it might be that a part of the universe can only 
understand so much of the universe and not the universe as a whole. But hopefully we will be able to figure out most everything um, eventually, given our ability to continue to not destroy ourselves, which you know, fluctuates from day to day how I feel about that, how I feel that's going. Um, Mostly it's going downward these days, but you know. Okay, so let's talk about a second really cool thing that's happened. So this is a never before. So this is that Radio astronomers have recently completed a five-day effort that looked at two black holes. And so they're hoping that this will finally lead to the first ever image of the event horizon of a black hole. And again, this is going to be another one of those composite images where a ton of people took pictures and they're going to lay them all one on top of the other and hope that with the combined power of all of those images, they'll be able to actually see something. And unfortunately for this one, we're going to have to wait. The uh, dark matter image we can already view, but this one, it's going to take a while because this was a pretty amazing project. Um... And so not only is it going to take a while to process all the data, um, 1,024 hard drives worth that must be transferred to the Event Horizon Telescope's Processing Center at MIT Haystack and the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy in Bonn, Germany. And now part of the problem is that, for instance, there's a drive at the South Pole, which won't be able to be sent back up to uh, either Germany or MIT until the end of October. So (laughs) this is kind of a delayed gratification thing, but hopefully it's going to be amazing. Even if the first images are still crappy and washed out, we can already test for the first time some basic predictions of Einstein's theory of gravity in the extreme environment of a black hole, says radio astronomer Heino Falke of Radboud University in Nijemen, the Netherlands. I'm sorry for mispronouncing that. I'm sure I did. They are the ultimate endpoint of space and time and may represent the ultimate limit of our knowledge. Again, the limit of our knowledge. So, yeah, that is very cool. Okay, we're going to go back to a belated shout-out celebration of sorts, I guess? (laughs) So, yesterday, as you probably know, was the infamous 420 uh, day celebrating marijuana. And so I figured this year I'd have a couple of stories because there just happened to be some that I thought were really interesting. So we've got two stories related to this quote unquote holiday. And so the first one's really interesting. Let's talk about the origin of 420 because I think that that's really interesting because I've always thought, or at least I think that basically that's what I assumed is true, is that it refers to some sort of police code for arresting um, someone for possession of marijuana or something like that. But it turns out that the name is actually much more interesting and quirky. According to an article in Live Science, the name comes from a group of young men in Northern California in the early 70s. They called themselves the Waldos and attended high school in San Rafael, California, um, around the same time as when the Grateful Dead were living there. You see where this is going. (laughs) 
<laughs> so the story goes that they found out about a secret patch of weed that was being grown by a U.S. Coast Guard member near Point Reyes. And so they basically got together and decided to search for this secret plot of uh, marijuana. And so they met up in front of a statue of Louis Pasteur at 4.20 p.m., and from then on, they met at 420 each day until they finally gave up and moved on. But the name 420 for smoking marijuana stuck. We didn't know we were creating history at the time. It was just a private joke we were telling between ourselves, said Dave Reddix, one of the original Waldos, who is now an independent filmmaker in San Francisco. Now, the term spread first from the Waldos to members of the entourage of the Grateful Dead and eventually ended up on a flyer. Now, somewhere along the line, it moved from the creation of the Waldos to a story of it being a police code. And where it sort of took that turn, it's not clear. It's clear that um, the story of it being a police code is pretty old. Um, and so someone was saying that they had heard it in the late 70s. Um, so it seems like the origin from the Waldos was pretty quickly uh, forgotten. Um, and it pretty quickly became this idea that it was a code from the police, um, which I think is really interesting. And so eventually a copy of the flyer ended up in the hands of Steve Bloom, publisher of Celeb Stoner and founder of Freedom Leaf magazine in 1990. Now, this flyer told the tale of 420 again as a police code and suggested that readers celebrate 420 as the grand master of all holidays, meeting up at 420 p.m. on 420. Bloom wrote about the flyer in High Times magazine, and from there it began to take off. Now, a few years later, a few of the Waldos got in touch with Bloom and told him the tale of the true origins of the date. And, you know, they had supporting uh, evidence, they had letters and things like that, that pretty conclusively, at least to, to um, Bloom, seemed to show that they weren't just trying to, you know, take credit for something like, um, take credit for this, that they had actually really done it. So um, it's one of the things that I love finding out these sorts of things, you know, the true story behind legends. And this is a particularly good example of a legend that it has a lot of staying power because it seems like it be, could be completely true. It's absolutely, you know, plausible that this could be a police code and that that could have been what was going on. And so it's one of those things where it just seems right. And so people never think to actually ask someone, <laughs> is this actually true? Because it just, you know, it feels right. It makes sense. So why would you ask if it's actually the reality or not? Um, and so, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, now, of course, in this case, it's not a huge deal to know the origin of 420. Um, but for other urban legends and conventional wisdom, belief can be more dangerous. For instance, believing that vaccines have something to do with autism. Um, because, of course, that is an idea that has basically spread like an urban legend. Um, 
with, of course, disastrous results. But let us uh, take a break now, and then we are going to go back to pot, and we're going to talk about a new meta, um, new meta review that talks about what we do and do not know about how pot really affects people. So I think that's going to be really interesting. So hang on for a few minutes while we run some PSAs. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hi, my name's Leo, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times. But take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I Heart J Rock with DJ Sakura is on Saturday mornings at 12 to 2 a.m. on WXOJ LP 103.3 FM in Northampton. And you can stream us on valleyfreeradio.org. I Heart J Rock will be playing rock music from Japan, uh, J Rock, J Pop, and some VK. Uh, if you like that stuff, give my show a listen, please. And also follow me on Twitter at DJ Sakura 666. Thank you. Hey, kids, let mom help with your science project. This new mom wants her kids' science project to thrive. Too bad she hasn't cracked a science book since 1985. A metathesis reaction? Compounds, mixtures, and elements. Even this baking soda volcano is too big of an experiment. Whoa. Now she's completely forgotten the periodic table. Now she's burning a hole through the kitchen. 
kitchen table Burning with science But her kids' love for the mom Is truly transparent Proof you don't have to be perfect To be the perfect parent Don't tell Dad You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent Thousands of siblings in foster care Will take you just as you are For more information on how you can adopt Visit AdoptUSKids.org A public service announcement From the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Adopt US Kids and the Ad Council Spring and summer are prime time for ticks that can spread Lyme disease and other infections. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would like to remind you to wear bug repellent when outdoors, shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check your whole body for ticks every day. If you've been bitten by a tick and develop fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. The views and opinions expressed on WXOJLP are solely those of the original hosts and guests of their respective programs. These views and opinions do not necessarily represent those of Valley Free Radio Incorporated, its volunteers, or any other hosts, guests, or programs broadcasted on this station. If you would like to know more about Valley Free Radio, please visit us at valleyfreeradio.org. And we are back, and we are talking about marijuana (laughs) okay so a new review as i was saying of studies about marijuana by the national academies of sciences engineering and medicine uh looked at ten thousand studies published since 1999 and so they were looking at the strengths and weaknesses of smoking pot And so the researchers found overall that there was a potential benefit for chronic pain, multiple sclerosis, and cancer patients. However, they also noted potential side effects, including respiratory problems when smoked, risk of schizophrenia and psychosis, car crashes, lagging social achievement in life, and potential problems during pregnancy. Now, one of the huge caveats uh, that they pointed out and that I'm also going to point out is that... There's a huge problem here. (laughs) Um, Even though there are 10,000 studies, a lot of them aren't very well uh, done. And of course, the real problem for all of this is the frankly ridiculous fact that marijuana is considered a Schedule 1 drug. Um, And so, of course, that makes it extremely hard for researchers to obtain samples and to perform good quality studies on the effects of marijuana and cannabinoids. Um, So basically, if you can't get people to enroll in a proper doubly blinded experiment, it's kind of hard to, um, you know, deal with trying to make assumptions. Basically, most of these, and I mean, pot is one of those things, I'm not sure you can really do a double blind study necessarily, because you kind of, most people kind of know whether or not they're getting actual marijuana or fake marijuana, I would assume. But, um, you know, a lot of these are cohort studies, and they're self-reported, because, And of course, you only get a certain amount of people who are willing to self-report about their marijuana use, given the fact that it is illegal in most of the country and has been since 
uh, and was illegal in pretty much all of the country until very recently. And so it's hard to do good quality, uh, especially like university and um, college studies on something that is a schedule one drug. It's, you know, not easy at all. So even though there's 10,000 studies, a lot of them aren't very great. But because there's 10,000, they can make certain broad, generalized um, statements about what they did find in those studies. And so what they found, um, and actually one of the other things that I've heard, and I'm not sure what it, how it um, really affects research, but I have heard that the pot that people are able to get a hold of, um, especially if they're working in government labs and things like that, isn't necessarily as good of a quality or as strong as some of the strains that are now being sold. Because of course, one of the big things that has happened in the pot industry is that they have um, increased the potency. Um, I'm sure that a lot of people will will tell you that, you know, the pot that you get today is not nearly as, um, is, is much more potent than the stuff that was out there in the 60s and 70s uh, when the Waldos were searching for it in the the coastal uh, region of California. And so if you're not studying the right kind of pot, that can also be a problem. But let's talk about what the solid evidence is that they gleaned from the research. The most impressive finding, as I noted, is that there is conclusive evidence uh, that marijuana is good for, for instance, chronic pain. And I think that this is one of the really big uh, takeaways from this, because I think there's a good argument to be made, and a lot of people have already been making it, uh, that marijuana is a viable and could, in fact, be a preferable choice in most cases to opioid painkillers if it would work for those um, for the pain that they're being used to take away at the moment because marijuana of course part of the thing about marijuana is it affects people differently doesn't affect everyone um, the same way so that is one of those things Um, and so what they also talked about one of the hard things about studying marijuana is the fact that it's not um, it's not homogenized. And so one strain of marijuana is different from another. Um, and obviously you may know that they've been um, that marijuana growers have actually been creating a whole variety of marijuanas that have different properties. And so if you have one kind of marijuana, it might not have the same properties as another. So this is very complicated. Um, and, One of the other things is that they're still not sure whether or not you can actually take the cannabinoid out of a, um, you know, out of the raw pot and turn it into a pill and make that work. It may be that it's one of those situations where you need all of the things that are going on in the pot leaf all of the different chemicals, the different cannabinoids, everything might need to be in there in order to um, actually have the effect. And so it's, you know, obviously, again, still kind of an up in the air kind of thing, because again, super hard to research. Um, And so, of course, this is where one of those, uh, this is, of course, a place where conspiracy theory comes in, um, that, you know, 
big pharma is trying to uh, keep people from being able to take pot instead of having to use expensive opioids. Um, And, you know, I don't know um, whether or not that's true. It certainly has a very satisfying ring to it. But as we noted before, just because something has a satisfying ring to it, just because we think that makes sense doesn't necessarily mean it is. And, you know, I have no real way to tell whether or not it is happening. Um, So, you know, at this point, it is a conspiracy theory because we don't know for certain that that's one of the big reasons. I mean, there's a lot of other reasons why pot is still a Schedule 1 drug, um, including, you know, good old-fashioned racism. So um, let's keep going. The report also concluded that there is conclusive evidence, once again, that marijuana treats chemotherapy-induced nausea. So this suggests that marijuana can, in fact, be a great benefit to cancer patients. Now, to treat their symptoms, not the cancer themselves, the cancer itself, though. They also found, um, and this was the third most uh, conclusive thing that they found, was that the drug improved patient-reported MS spasticity symptoms, but limited evidence that it improved them when reported by doctors. And so again, you kind of have to extrapolate from this. You can say that there might be a psychosomatic element um, involved with the patient, or it could be that clinicians are still wary of recommending the drug, and so they're wary of saying that, yes, I've seen a great improvement. And again, more research is needed, more research, so much more research is needed. And so unfortunately, the report notes that there's limited evidence for a lot of the other uh, touted helps that marijuana can have. So there's limited evidence that it aids appetite in patients with HIV AIDS, uh, that it helps with Tourette syndrome symptoms, um, with PTSD and other psychiatric disorders. And um, in fact, the report states it found no or insufficient evidence for a host of claimed benefits for pot, including for irritable bowel syndrome, which is interesting because I know someone who has been uh, who has taken um, cannabinoid therapy for that in the past. Um, And again, you know, uh, (laughs) anecdotally has said that it helped her. but also for epilepsy, cancer, Parkinson's disease, and a whole bunch of other um, diseases. But of course, what they caution, um, because they're good scientists, is that this isn't to say that there is no evidence of those things that could be found. It just means that there's no evidence in these studies that have so far been done. And um, so as noted in an article in Vox, Many people obviously swear that pot has greatly improved their symptoms for any number of the above mentioned diseases and more. Um, And so it may turn out that things like I know that epilepsy is something that a lot of people have talked about as well that pot helps with. And it may just be that we need to do the right study in order to find that real effect. But let's talk about the downsides now. We've all heard someone say that pot is the safest drug out there. And of course, I would personally generally argue that it's very much potentially safer than nicotine, alcohol, and especially opioid, opioid painkillers. But it is not without risks. 
the researchers found substantial evidence that for long-term smokers, there's a risk of respiratory problems and an increase in chronic bronchitis. Women who smoke pot during pregnancy risk babies with a low birth weight. And there is also a well-established link between pot usage and the risk of developing schizophrenia and other psychoses. The researchers also found, and this one actually did surprise me, a correlation between pot usage and risk of car crashes. Um, so yeah, it's not safe to uh, smoke and drive. Who knew? Um, <laughs> I mean, it didn't surprise me that much, but um, it surprised me more than I um, thought it would. Again, there is a moderate to limited amount of evidence that pot can worsen worsen symptoms of those with psychological issues. And unsurprisingly, there is moderate evidence that acute use impairs learning, memory, and attention. Now, better news suggests that there is a moderate amount of evidence that marijuana use is not tied to an increased risk of lung cancer and the kinds of head and neck cancer normally associated with tobacco products. Now, again, another thing to remember is that most of this research is centered around ingesting pot, either by smoking it or in some sort of pharmaceutical form. Less research has been done on the impact of vaping and edibles. So the takeaway is that pot is not harmless. Uh, there are real physiological and psychological um, effects that it can have, especially in people who are longtime habitual users. And there is a real chance that it can have a detrimental effect if you have a predisposition or are currently suffering from mental health issues. Um, and especially the younger you are, the more chance of having that have a um, effect. And so, obviously, long-term chronic use is not recommended, but there is solid evidence that some of the most important claims for the drug, such as that it can aid in chronic pain management and that it can help with chemotherapy-related nausea, bear out. So let's hope that sometime in the not-too-distant future, some sanity will come to our drug policy and that pot will be rescheduled, allowing researchers to do better and more thorough trials that will give us better evidence of the true benefits and limitations of this drug. And of course, a couple of stories today reminded me of a sad anniversary, which is that it is the unfortunate anniversary of the death of the uh, singer Prince, who was not only a Jehovah's Witness, um, he was also uh, unfortunately a victim of um, addiction to opioid painkillers. And, um, you know, the opioid painkiller problem is something we do definitely need a solution to, um, although I could talk at length about the fact that we seem to care more about this particular epidemic of drug use than others, um, probably because it affects middle class white Americans more. Um, but that's another more political uh, rant for another day's uh, for another show. <laughs> um but I wanted to finish up tonight with a cool study that actually has some really positive effects. So um, there are two new large-scale 
large-scale studies that suggest that prenatal use of antidepressants is not linked to autism or ADHD. So these studies are both published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Um, And so clinically, the message is, quote, quite reassuring for practitioners and for mothers needing to make a decision about antidepressant use during pregnancy, says psychiatrist Simone Vigod, a co-author of one of the studies. Now, around one in 10 women develop a major depressive episode during pregnancy. So this is really welcome news for those who wish to help women explore their options for staying healthy. And in fact, untreated depression can have real physical effects on the fetus, including poor growth, preterm birth, and developmental problems. Many of us have started to look at longer-term child outcomes related to antidepressant exposure because mothers want to know about that in the decision-making process, says Vigan of Women's College Hospital in Toronto. Now, previous studies had actually suggested an increased risk for autism and ADHD, along with premature birth and fetal growth issues for women who took antidepressants. The key question is whether those risks are due to the actual medication, says psychologist Brian D'Onofrio of Indiana University Bloomington, whose team authored the other study. Could the negative outcome be due to the depression itself or stress or genetic factors? So in order to answer this question, both teams took large sample sizes and applied sophisticated statistical techniques to try to tease out the connection between depression, antidepressant use, and genetic predisposition. And so what they did was um, D'Onofrio's team looked at more than 1.5 million Swedish children uh, born between 1996 and 2012, where around 1.4% of the mothers of those children reported using antidepressants at the time. What they did was really kind of brilliant. They compared siblings in which the mother had used antidepressants during one, but not both births. And so when they looked at siblings, they found that that initial effect completely went away. Children have roughly twice the risk of having autism if the mother takes antidepressant medicine during the fight first trimester, says D'Onofrio, but that association goes completely away when you compare siblings. Our results suggest that it is actually not due to the medication itself. And so Vigod and her colleagues looked at mothers who qualified for public drug coverage in Ontario, Canada, from from 2002 to 2015 and found much the same. The use of sibling matches in both studies is a very innovative way to account for genetics and a shared environment, said Tim Oberlander, developmental pediatrician at the University of British Columbia, who co-authored a commentary on the study. We can ignore the fact that there we can't ignore the fact that there are shared genetic mechanisms that might relate autism and depression. The genetic reason that brought the mom to use the drug may say more about the risk of autism in the child. And so this is really excellent good news. All right. And with that, I am out of time for this evening. So stay tuned for Civil Politics. And um, I will unfortunately not be back next week, but I will be back in two weeks with more science-based and evidence-based radio. So hang on.
Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT.